Um, I'll just pray for us before we begin. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for your word and for the opportunity we have to study it together this evening. Uh, We pray that you'd give us uh, open ears and hearts to uh, hear it and understand it and be changed by it. In your name, amen. Well, um, good evening, everyone. Uh, And thanks very much for the kind invitation to round off uh, the house party experience by speaking to you all this evening. Um, It's always a pleasure for me to come back up the hill to Fulwood. Um, I do bring with me the greetings of all at Christchurch Central. Um, And thanks too, um, just echo Gareth, thanks for all of your support and prayer on house party. Um, I managed not to put my knee through any windows this year, as those of you who are around three years ago will be relieved to hear. Um, Now, there are many words that I could use to sum up house party. Uh, Fun, uh, encouragement, banter, mayhem, uh, delicious food, uh, professionalism, smartness... Um, but, but I think that the word that best, best describes the house party ethos is this, sacrifice. Uh, now, I could be talking about the sacrifice of a leader's dignity, um, the sacrifice of a cook's holiday, or the sacrifice of a good night's sleep for many of us. Uh, but I think that uh, nowhere last week was the spirit of sacrifice better embodied than in the nightly pillow fights that were staged in the boys' dorms. Um, Now, these epic struggles normally pitted uh, house party veterans like uh, Peter German or Tom McKendrick uh, against young upstarts like Tim Burtwistle or Andrew Groom. Uh, It was the age-old struggle of of generations engaged in a visceral ballet of sweat and feathers. Um, Both sides believed that supremacy was their right, and both were prepared to make sacrifices for the cause they believed in, uh, putting their bodies on the line in order to strike blows that would topple an opponent. Um, in fact, some, some were prepared to make greater sacrifices than others. And, uh, and Harry Pontefract, in an effort to deliver a decisive hit, swung his pillow so hard that when he missed his intended target, he dislocated his shoulder um, and was therefore eliminated from the bout. Um, yeah, the, the lads on House Party know all about making sacrifices for a cause they believe in. Uh, but any anxious mothers here tonight will be relieved to know their sacrifices pale in comparison to the example set by Stephen in tonight's passage. Uh, Now, as you've heard, we've worked through the first five chapters of Acts on House Party this year, and we've seen the gospel, the Christian message, spreading across Jerusalem. But we've also seen opposition growing alongside it. And the story of Stephen that uh, is told for us in Luke chapters 6 and 7 is a decisive moment in both the spread of the gospel and in the intensification of opposition to it, because Stephen is prepared to make the ultimate sacrifice He's prepared to die for his faith. But as we'll learn from tonight's passage, Stephen is more than just the first recorded Christian martyr, the first person to die for following Jesus. And his story has more to teach us than just the fact that Christianity is a faith worth dying for. Um, Do keep your Bibles open as we work through Stephen's story tonight. Uh, There's plenty of Bible to cover in Acts 6 and 7, so uh, we'd best crack on. The very first mention of Stephen comes in Acts chapter 6 and verse 5, uh, where he's selected as one of the men who's responsible in the church for the practical task of making sure that food is being equally distributed. Uh, And he's described there as a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. Even at this early stage, uh, Luke, who wrote Acts, singles Stephen out as something special. Uh, And it's a verdict that is backed up in verse 8. Have a look. Uh, Luke tells us there that Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, did great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. 
But as those of us who've been on house party and have been studying Acts this week have come to expect, it's not long before opposition arises. Have a look at verse 9. At first, it takes the form of an argument. But when Stephen proves too strong for his opponents in verse 10, his Jewish adversaries embark on a smear campaign. They make false accusations against Stephen. And so, in verse 12, he is brought to trial before the highest Jewish court in the land, the Sanhedrin. And chapter 7, which we read part of earlier, is Stephen's defence speech. And Luke has gone to the trouble of recording it at great length. Um, At first, it seems like a bit of a strange rambling account. Um, He seems to be given a summary uh, of Israelite history to Jewish experts, which I think rather smacks of teaching grammar to suck eggs. But when we understand the nature of the accusations against him, we'll see that, in fact, it is an extremely skillful and powerful defence. If we read the speech outside of the context of the accusations, it'd be like only hearing the punchline of a joke and then wondering why we don't get it. Uh, Now, if I walked up to you um, after the service and said to you, go for the juggler, you'd be bemused, wouldn't you? And you'd start looking around for a man trying to keep several balls in the air. But when I tell you the first half of the joke, um, how do you kill a circus? The answer, go for the juggler. Juggler, juggler, you see? Uh, It makes much more sense, doesn't it? It even generates a, a slight ripple of laughter. Um, so, so what are those accusations? Well, there are two. Um, have a look at verses 13 and 14 of chapter 6 and see what the false witnesses say about Stephen. This fellow never stops speaking against this holy place and against the law, for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. Can you see the accusations there? They're accusing Stephen of speaking against the temple, Uh, the centre of the Jewish religion for centuries past, and against the law, two things that the Jews considered sacred, the temple and the law. So these are are very serious accusations indeed. And so in chapter 7, Stephen has to defend himself against these, and we'll look at each accusation in turn. Firstly, in response to the accusation that he is speaking against the temple, Stephen, Stephen says that God has never been constrained by geography. That's the first point for this evening. God has never been constrained by geography. And Stephen uses Jewish history to prove that this is the case. Have a look at verse 2 of chapter 7. Stephen goes right the way back to Abraham, the father of the Jewish nation. And he shows that God appeared to Abraham when the Jews didn't have any land, let alone a temple. They weren't even a nation. God is not constrained by geography. And look at verses 4 and 5. Even when Abraham went to the promised land, the land where the Jews are now living, He didn't own it. He had no inheritance there, not even a foot of ground. No land, no temple, but God was still relating to Abraham and still making promises to him. In fact, have a look at verse 6. Those promises included the Israelites, Abraham's descendants, living in a foreign land as slaves for 400 years. And in verses 9 to 16, Stephen documents that time. Joseph, he of the amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat fame, was sold into slavery in Egypt. But look at verse 9. God was with him and rescued him from all his troubles. God is not constrained by geography. Stephen bangs home that point that God was with his people in Egypt just through the sheer number of mentions of Egypt in those verses. The word crops up eight times in verses 9 to 18. That's almost once a verse. But even in Egypt, God was with his people. And next, in verses 17 to 43, Stephen gives the story of Moses who led the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt towards the promised land where they eventually established the Jewish nation. 
But even throughout Moses' life, Stephen gives proof after proof that God is not constrained by geography. For a start, uh, Moses ends up having to leave Egypt as a fugitive in verse 29. And he goes to Midian. It's not Israel, but God was with him there anyway. So much so that 40 years later, in verse 30, God appeared to Moses. In the temple? No, there was no temple. God appeared in a burning bush. Um, Now Stephen says in verse 30 that it was an angel who appeared, but in verse 31 it is God who speaks, and in verse 32 it is God who identifies himself as the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It might be via an angel, but God is there. He is not constrained by geography. God sends Moses back to Egypt, but he goes with him so that, verse 36, Moses could lead the people out of Egypt and do wonders and miraculous signs in Egypt at the Red Sea and for 40 years in the desert. And none of those places are the temple in Jerusalem. And the final proof that Stephen gives from Moses' life is in verse 38. It's a massively important moment in Israel's history as God gave Moses the law, living words. But he didn't need a temple to do so. He did it on Mount Sinai in the desert, in the middle of nowhere. In verses 44 to 47, uh, Stephen gives a brief history of the temple, which started out as the tabernacle, uh, a portable temple until the Israelites eventually got some land to build a a real one on, um, but which was eventually built, a temple, by King Solomon, although it was his father David's idea. And in verses 48 to 50, Stephen really sums up his argument. He gets to a climax with a a quote from the prophet Isaiah. Um, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool, says God. God is not confined to a building. The Most High does not live in houses made by men. God is not constrained by geography. So can you see the mistake that the Jews in Stephen's time were making? Uh, They basically idolised the temple. They'd taken it too literally. Um, It was meant to represent God living with his people. And it was therefore a very special place. But it was ridiculous to suggest that God's presence or his activity, was confined to the temple. If the temple was destroyed, which in fact it was a few decades later, God would not be destroyed, any more than I would cease to exist if somebody burned down my home, 276 Springvale Road. Um, you can come and visit if you want. I'll, I'll put the kettle on and have a cup of tea. Um, so in summary, uh, many of God's major dealings with his people in the Old Testament occurred outside the Promised Land. The law was given outside the Promised Land. The tabernacle was given outside the Promised Land. But the Jews had idolised the temple. If they'd studied their history and their prophecies, the prophecies like Isaiah's, they should have known better because God is not constrained by geography. Uh, Let me give you an illustration. Uh, One of the things we did on House Party that Matt mentioned earlier in his interview uh, was to go cycling in the New Forest. Um, I don't know if any of you have ever been to the New Forest, uh, but it's a lovely venue for a bit of cycling, uh, sort of gently undulating with uh, some slight inclines, but nothing too severe. Uh, and it's crisscrossed by a vast network of cycle paths. Um, now, we'd split up into groups of about 15 or so, uh, and each group had a map. Um, now, Dave Godwin, who's doing the sound tonight, had the map for our group. Uh, and Dave's an excellent reader, uh, map reader, so this was, it was a fine plan, except that 15 minutes into our ride, uh, we lost him. So, so we had no map, and that meant that for the rest of the afternoon... Uh, my group was forced to cycle like maniacs to stay on the tail of Ross Graham's group, who, who did have a map, but were kind of keener and fitter and faster than most of us. Uh, it also meant that, that we couldn't just go off and do our own thing. Our afternoon was still fun, but, but it was constrained. It was limited. Um, and I'm sorry to say that so was Ross's, because he kept having to stop and wait for us. But God is not constrained. He isn't limited to certain buildings or, or parts of the world or races 
He can do what he likes, where he likes, with whichever people he likes. Which is a really important point as far as Luke's concerned when he's writing Acts. Because right back at the start of the book, in chapter 1, verse 8, as all the youth down here will be able to tell you, um, Jesus tells his disciples that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And if God was constrained by geography, that just wouldn't be possible, would it? Uh, Just have a look at the end of Stephen's story and the results of his death in verses 1 and 4 of chapter 8. Uh, verse 1 there. On, a great day, on, sorry, on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. And verse 4, those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Just like Jesus promised at the start of Acts, the gospel is spreading. And you see, the application for us is that God has never been constrained by geography, so the gospel should never be constrained by geography. The gospel got as far as Judea and Samaria in Acts 8. Um, It got as far as Rome in Acts 28, the end of the book. And it has got as far as Sheffield in the 21st century. So that means that if we are Christians here this evening, we can have massive confidence that God is with us. A God who rules the world and is with his people wherever they are in it. God is with you here in Fullwood when you're trying to reach out with the gospel in this community. He's with us down at Christchurch Central as we try to reach out with the gospel in the centre of Sheffield. Um, He's with the missionaries we support in China, Central Asia and Africa. He will be with you guys as you head off to university, those of you that have finished school or on gap years. Just as he was with Stephen and the early church as the gospel broke out of Jerusalem and into the surrounding area. And it's a great lesson to remember if you're thinking about planting another church in the future because there is nowhere that you could plant a church that God would not go with you. But I guess the challenge for us here tonight is to remember that God is not constrained and to not make the mistake that the Jews in Stephen's day made by constraining him in our thinking. Uh, That might be geographically, uh, thinking we can't reach out with the gospel to tough parts of the world uh, where there's a lot of persecution or to even tough parts of Sheffield like the manor. Or it might just be um, that we're tempted to constrain God in our expectations of how we can reach people who we know who seem miles away from even considering Christianity. Uh, That colleague at work who's always hostile to the gospel or the person you know at school who mocks you for being a Christian. But we mustn't constrain God in our thinking. He is bigger than we could possibly imagine. Stephen's defence against the accusation that he was criticising the temple reminds the Christian that our God is a great big God who rules the world and who is active in saving people all over it. But what of the other accusation that he was speaking against the Jewish law? Well, in response to that, Stephen points out that God's messengers have always been rejected. God's messengers have always been rejected. And just like his first uh, defence, Stephen makes this point by giving the Jewish authorities another history lesson. And the first rejected messenger is Moses, Uh, in verse 25 of chapter 7. Have a look. Uh, What happens here is that Moses basically sees one of his Israelites, fellow Israelites, being beaten by an Egyptian. So, um, like Harry Pontefract, thousands of years later, goes to strike a blow for justice, um, except that Moses hit his target and nobody's arm falls out of its socket. Um, And look at the reaction in verse 25. Moses thought that his own people would realise that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. Verse 35 expands on the point Moses was sent back to the Israelites in Egypt, 
the same Moses whom they had rejected with the words, who made you ruler and judge? And it wasn't just once that this happened. The people also rejected Moses when he gave them God's law, the living words of verse 38. Look at verse 39. But our fathers refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him, and in their hearts they turned back to Egypt. And this rejection descends into making idols, a golden calf to worship instead of the living God. Stephen explains that this position of rejecting God's messengers and disobeying God's law was was kind of the default position for the Israelites throughout their history. Um, In verses 42 and 43, he quotes another prophet, Amos, uh, speaking hundreds of years after Moses, to point out that Israel worshipped false gods, and therefore God would send them into exile, which was exactly what happened to the Israelite nation a few hundred years before the time of Jesus. And verses 51 to 53 are Stephen's conclusion, where his speech reaches its climax and provokes the most violent reaction from his hearers. He has established from Old Testament history that God's messengers were always rejected. Look at verse 52, where he says that the Israelites persecuted all God's prophets and even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one, the Messiah or Christ, God's promised saviour king, who was going to one day come and sort out God's messed up relationship with his people once and for all. The Israelites were bad, but Stephen wants his hearers to understand that they are just the same, if not worse. He tells them in verse 51 that you are just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. They always reject God speaking to them. And look at the end of verse 52. This is the most shocking indictment of them all. Not only have they persecuted God's prophets and killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one, they have now betrayed and murdered the righteous one himself, Jesus. You see, the typical Old Testament reaction to the law was to break it, and Stephen's hearers have done that. Uh, The typical Old Testament reaction to the prophets who pointed out that law-breaking was persecution. The typical reaction to the prophets who prophesied the Messiah was to kill them, and now Stephen's hearers have completed that reaction by killing the Messiah himself. So when faced with this accusation accusation of speaking against the law, Stephen, uh, like a good football team, turns defence into attack. He is not the lawbreaker. They are. God's messengers have always been rejected. And Jesus, who, who was more than God's messenger, he was God himself, come to earth in order to die for his people, was rejected too. And uh, as if we needed any more convincing, just look at the reaction of the Jews in the next few verses. They are furious in verse 54. And and what Stephen says next doesn't exactly help. Uh, He sees a vision of Jesus, the same Jesus who was betrayed and murdered, standing in heaven at God's right hand, a position of ultimate authority. And so in verses 57 and 58, Stephen is dragged out of Jerusalem by a screaming mob and he is stoned to death. He too, speaking as God's messenger, is rejected. Um, Look at how he dies in verses 59 and 60. The words he says should remind us of Jesus' own death, which Luke recorded in his Gospel, volume 1 of his two-part work. Stephen prays, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And Jesus, dying on the cross, prayed, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. That's Luke chapter 23, verse 46. And Stephen cries out, back in Acts, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And Jesus, as the Roman soldiers crucified him, prayed, Father, forgive them, for they do, not know, they do not know what they are doing. 
Here's an interesting little aside for you. Um, At the start of uh, Acts 8, Luke tells us that Saul was there giving approval to Stephen's death. Um, This guy Saul, he became the church's number one enemy, but he was dramatically converted to Christianity. He ended up changing his name to the more famous Paul and becoming the church's number one missionary. And Saul, or Paul, who when writing uh, a letter to a church he planted in Philippi a few years later, said this, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And so, somehow, to attain to the resurrection from the dead. It's obvious, I think, from those verses, how much of an impact Stephen had on Paul. You see, God's messengers have always been rejected. Stephen was prepared to face rejection for being God's messenger. And as we see from those verses, Paul was too. Now, on House Party this year, we had a bit of a superhero theme, as you've already heard. Uh, And uh, as uh, Bex told us, every morning, Joe Houghton would give us a thought for the day based around a famous superhero, uh, sometimes clad in that tight suit, hugging the contours of his body. Um, now we had, uh, we had Superman, we had Spider-Man, Batman and others. Now one interesting thing that all those superheroes have in common is that they were, at some point, rejected by the people they were trying to help. When Superman first turned up, um, some people loved him, but others were suspicious. Spider-Man was branded a freak. And Batman was uh, just dark and mysterious and scary and and people ran away from him more often than not. And the most extreme example is uh, set by the X-Men who were mutants who had special powers that they wanted to use for good but they were rejected by society and they were forced to live in hiding. These superheroes provide us with a great example of the experience of God's messengers throughout the Bible. And they also provide a great example uh, of our second application for today God's messengers have always been rejected, so Christians should expect to be rejected. Those of us who are on house party have already seen this from other bits of Acts, Uh, but Stephen's trial and his stoning gives us another powerful reminder. Christians should expect to be rejected. People won't like it when we try to tell them that Jesus is the only way to God. But we're in good company. Uh, Superman, Spider-Man, Batman, the X-Men, but more helpfully, I think, uh, Moses... Stephen, Paul, and even Jesus himself. We have to live the Christian life realistically if we're Christians. And that means expecting that we may be rejected by people, even people we care deeply about. But Christianity is a faith worth dying for because we will not be rejected by God. Stephen gets a vision of that before he dies, a vision of Jesus welcoming him into heaven And we can expect a welcome of a similar nature. The resurrection into glory that Paul was looking forward to in those verses from Philippians. That is, of course, if we don't make the mistake that Stephen's hearers made and reject God's ultimate messenger, his own son, the one who died to save us and to guarantee that welcome into heaven for us, Jesus Christ. Accepting Jesus might mean a certain amount of rejection and hardship in this life. Uh, And I guess we're lucky, aren't we, in that we 
live in a time and a place where that is not going to mean death by stoning. It'll just mean perhaps a harsh word here or there and um, perhaps some difficulty with friendships. But rejecting Jesus will mean rejection by God. And that is just not worth risking. So if you're here this evening and you're not a Christian, you really only need to take one thought away from Stephen's story. Don't make the mistake of the Jews and reject God's ultimate messenger.